0: Let me say good morning, UBC family. If we have any first-time guests in the audience today, I can tell you this is going to be a little bit different than the normal UBC sermon. It may be a lot different than anything you've heard before because, as Phil said, our goal today is to, to dive into some challenging questions as that are related to, uh, to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, And I I really do appreciate the elders trusting me with the opportunity to share uh, my heart on this. So we've got a lot of ground to cover and a lot of slides, but there are some pictures and uh, there will be Cliff's notes for those of you that like to take notes, so don't don't worry if your pen runs out of ink or whatever. But to start us off slow today, I thought I'd start us off with something that's kind of a treasure in my household. And this is a, this is a book that uh, I've had for 30 years. This is a book that uh, I read to my kids when they were small. My daughter, Megan, sitting over there can tell you that she's heard it lots of times, so many times that uh, most of us in the household hadn't had most of it memorized for a while. I won't read the whole book to you today, but I do want to share uh, the first couple of thoughts out of it. It starts off like this. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. God made the world its plain to see. H, I, J, K, L, M, N. But did he make dinosaurs? And if so, when? O P Q R S T U. The Bible has the answer. God's word is true. V W X Y and Z. We'll learn the truth about history. Just think about those simple biblical truths that are in those first four pages of that book that God made the world, that the Bible has the answer, and God's word is true. Those are the premises around which I will be uh, you know, answering the questions that have been presented to me today, and I contend that when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we need to look at it with the same childlike faith that my daughter Megan had when she was a toddler and I was reading this book to her. Okay, we've got our ABCs down, let's, let's work on our 1, two threes. Here we go. One character trait of God that I want us to ponder as we approach this subject this morning, and you know, it's a character trait that we don't normally spend a lot of time talking about, and that's the trait of intentionality. I believe God is a very intentional God. So what do I mean by intentionality? Well, consider Mark chapter 8 where Jesus does what is often referred to as the two-stage miracle. It's the one where Jesus spits in the blind man's eyes, and then he touches him, and then he asks him do you see anything? And the blind man replies, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So then Jesus touched him again and healed him. Do you really think Jesus didn't get it quite right the first time? Maybe he didn't use enough spit. Uh, Let's consider a better alternative. An alternative that recognizes that our God, again, is a very intentional being, that he doesn't say or do anything by happenstance, that Every syllable he utters and every action he takes is informed by perfect knowledge of everything that has happened in the past, everything that is happening right now, and everything that will happen in the future. We may not understand his purpose, and in this case, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus' purpose was, but I'm convinced he had one nonetheless. I'm convinced he had one when he healed this man in this two-phase process. Maybe that's a good topic for growth groups to talk about, maybe what that purpose was but I'm also convinced he had one in Genesis. Intentionality, that's our number one. Now on to two, two guiding principles about the Bible that I want us to keep in mind this morning. The first is the principle of perspicuity. That's a big church word, which the Cambridge Dictionary defines as the quality of being clear and easily understood. That's something I hope I am today. Uh, From a theological standpoint, it means that the Bible itself can be properly interpreted in a normal, literal sense. Perpiscuity means that you don't need to be a priest or a scholar or seminary grad to understand the basic tenets of God's Word. It's intentionally written and indeed divinely inspired so we can read it and comprehend its meaning at face value. That's what we'll be doing this morning. The second principle is sola scriptura. That's a Latin term for the belief that the Bible is the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. And I posit that what we believe about creation is an important part of our Christian faith and practice. Sola scriptura doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't refer to other sources of information. It simply means that the Bible is the only source that is fully authoritative and anything that disagrees with the Bible should be rejected, even if it's D for dinosaur. And now, number three, three basic types of questions that we're going to talk about today. The first type include those questions for which Scripture gives clear answers. A good type one question is, why did God create man in the first place? Have you ever thought about that one? Well, it turns out that Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 tells us uh, exactly. It says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So it's right there in the text that God created us for his glory. We'll call these type ones questions with black and white answers. The second type gets a little trickier. This type includes questions about creation that, although not answered directly in Scripture, they can be logically deduced from what Scripture does tell us. For instance, a common one, where did Cain get his wife? Well, we know that Eve was the mother of all living, according to Genesis 3.20, and that Cain was her son, according to Genesis 4:1. so Cain must have married a close relative, most likely his sister. And for those that are you know, thinking about uh, uh, marrying one's sister, note that that was not forbidden uh, until Moses' era in the Leviticus time frame. And yes, Scripture does confirm in Genesis 5.4 that Adam and Eve had daughters as well as sons. I also include questions about dinosaurs in this type two category, since scripture does not mention them by name. Note that the word dinosaur is a modern term that did not even enter human uh, vocabulary until the mid 1800s. So we shouldn't be surprised that we don't read the word dinosaur, nor automobile or computer when we read the Bible. What the Bible does tell us is that sea creatures and flying things were made on day five, so logically that means the plesiosaur, which is a sea creature, and the pterodactyl, a flying thing, were also created on day five. Proper dinosaurs, the land dwelling type, logically fit into the area of livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the field, which were created on day six. And as Jason noted last week, we can likewise deduce from Genesis 1.30 that dinosaurs, along with lions and tigers and bears, were all vegetarians initially, even the T-Rex. We'll call these type two questions uh, with logically deducible answers. That gets us to type three. The third type includes questions that Scripture does not provide answers to, either directly or indirectly. These are questions about creation that cannot be answered conclusively, although we can posit logical possibilities based on what the Bible does tell us and what we can deduce from the observation of the created order. Ultimately, these answers are interpretive ideas and informed speculation. They describe what might have happened. A good Type 3 question that we'll address later is, how did distant starlight make it to Earth by day six? We'll call type threes questions with speculative answers. By the way, please don't be misled by the term speculative here. It does not necessarily mean these answers aren't informed by math and science and evidence. It simply means we have no way of authoritatively confirming their answer since they're not addressed in Scripture. I should also note that this notion of speculative answers it's not unique to creation studies. It's also the nature of the so-called uh, prehistoric uh, sciences. For instance, the Big Bang Theory is evolutionist, speculative attempt to explain the universe from a naturalistic perspective. Okay, let's recap where we are so, thus far. One character trait of God to keep in mind, intentionality. Two biblical principles to keep in mind, sola scriptura, sola scriptura and perspicuity. Three basic types of questions that we'll address today. Those with black and white answers, those with logically deducible answers, and those with speculative answers. I say all this up front to kind of set up uh, uh, the answers as we go through each of the subsequent questions. So let's begin with a type one question. At least I consider this one a type one, one with a black and white answer. And this one's a doozy. I contend it's the question that drives many of the other questions we have about uh, Genesis chapter one. So we'll be spending significant time on question one. Did God really say he created heaven and earth in six literal days? I realize that other devout believers have reached a very different conclusion on this, but I personally believe the answer is a resounding yes. To help you see how I've reached that conclusion, I'll address this question from four perspectives, the perspective of four historical troublemakers. Our first historical troublemaker happens to be from Scotland, and he's undoubtedly the least famous of the four. The gentleman I have in mind is the noted Hebrew scholar, Dr. James Barr. He's from Oxford, and as the former president of both the British Society for Old Testament Study and the British Association for Jewish Studies, it's fair to say that he knew a thing about the Old Testament and its native language. I should point out, by the way, that Dr. Barr, who passed away in 2006, did not personally believe in a literal six-day creation, nor did he believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Yet he had this to say about Genesis 1 through 11. So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that, one, creation took place in a series of six days where they were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience, two, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provide by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world Up to the later stages in biblical history. And three, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguish all human and animal life except for those on the ark. So in other words, Dr. Barr is basically saying, although I don't personally believe Genesis 1 through 11 is actual history, my fellow Hebrew scholars and I do believe that the author of Genesis intended the passage to be understood as history. Now let's take that one step further. If you hold that scripture is the inerrant word of God and that the author of Genesis, namely Moses, was divinely inspired by God, then the author must have had a right understanding of the days of creation. Ergo, if uh, Moses wrote them with an understanding of them being six literal days and you got that information from an authoritative sort, they must have been six literal days of 24 hours each. Admittedly, that's one scholar's perspective on his understanding of what his peers believe, but I believe, given Dr. Barr's personal viewpoint that Genesis isn't history, I think this understanding is about as unbiased a perspective as we're going to see. Now, let's turn to Germany and talk about another troublemaker, Martin Luther. This guy had the audacity in the 1500s to tell the leaders of the Catholic Church that they were butchering the meaning of Scripture in about 100 different ways. And one of those had to do with the notion of six-day creation. You see, in the 1500s, the church leaders were asking a different question. They were asking, why did an infinitely powerful God take so long to create the universe? They thought God could have done it in an instant. And you know what? I believe God could have done it in an instant. I also believe that he could have taken billions of years had he chosen to. But he tells us he did it in six days with intentionality. But back to Martin Luther. Here's what Martin Luther had to say on the subject. When Moses writes that God created the heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days, and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. So remember our two biblical principles, sola scriptura and perspicuity? Luther is saying scripture is both authoritative and clear on the matter, that the days of creation are six literal days, and it's inappropriate for us to twist God's word to say something it doesn't. I contend that Luther's statement is as applicable today as it was when he said it in the 1500s. Since Martin Luther mentioned Moses, let's go there next. This guy was definitely a troublemaker. Just ask the Egyptian pharaohs. He was also the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. Or more accurately, in the case of Genesis the transcriptionist, since God dictated the narrative uh, to him. And remember what Barr said, Moses believed the Gentile account was history, and he stylistically wrote it as history. If, we, if I were transcribing the spoken word of God, I think I'd consider it history too. But just like the word day can have multiple meanings in our day, see what I did there? The word yom, the Hebrew counterpart to our modern word day, can likewise have multiple meanings. This includes... A 24-hour day, as in a calendar day, uh, daytime in contrast to night, or an indefinite period of time, like the day of the Lord. Context determines which meaning is correct. So now let's look at Genesis 1, and we'll start with the less controversial verses. Specifically, verse 5, it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Here God is defining the daylight portion of a solar day for us. And in verse 14 and verse 18, we see God reusing the definition for the daylight portion of a solar day. In both of these verses, God is saying that the sun and the moon separate the day and the night respectively. Pretty straightforward. But the usage in the second half of verse 14 is different. And let them, when he's talking about the heavenly bodies, be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Given the context of seasons and years, it seems pretty clear, at least to me, that the intended context in this verse is a standard calendar day. You can't really measure seasons and years if the intended context of day here is an indefinite arbitrary period of time. So that leaves us with the six controversial uses of the word day in Genesis 1. Before we dive into those though, I think it would be useful to consider how day, again Yom in Hebrew, is understood elsewhere in the Old Testament. It turns out the intended use in those cases isn't questioned by scholars. From that research, here's what we can say about the meaning of Yom. We can basically devise four uh, rules. Evening or morning with Yom is a literal 24-hour day. Evening and morning without Yom is a literal 24-hour day. Yom with a number is a literal 24-hour day. And Yom with the word night, again, take it to be a literal day. Remember, satisfying just one of these rules is sufficient to substantiate a literal 24-day anywhere else in the Old Testament. There are no exceptions outside Genesis 1 in the Old Testament. So now let's apply these same rules inside Genesis 1. Here's how ESV renders those verses. Notice that all six of these verses have an identical structure. And all six contains uh, a number plus the words evening, morning, and day. Based on the four rules we described before, all six of these verses satisfy three of the four rules you can see, we've color-coded them just to make it easy to see there. But remember, anywhere else in the Old Testament, there would be zero debate if even one of these rules were satisfied. You know, it's almost as if God knew that you, me, and others would one day be asking whether these were literal 24-hour days, and he wanted to leave zero doubt in his intended message. It's almost as if God dictated to, uh, Genesis 1 to Moses with intentionality. Notice one other thing about the ESV rendering See how each verse uses the ordinal form of the number. Maybe it's been a while since you were in math class. So as a reminder, you know we display numbers in two types. There are cardinal numbers. You know think of these as the counting numbers: one, two, three, four, five. But we also see uh, in the ESV rendering here is the ordinal form: first, second, third, etc., which show sequence. Turns out that this is one of those areas where the ESV authors differed slightly from the original language to enhance readability to modern, lang- uh, modern English. So let's take a break from UBC transition, uh, tradition for a moment and look at Young's literal translation. Again, we see that all six verses contain a number plus the words evening, morning, and day. But the wording is a little different here and dare I say a bit awkward. Note that unlike the ESV, verse five is actually in cardinal form which we use for counting and also for definitions. I contend that God is doing in the second half of verse 5 the same thing He did in the first half of verse 5. Remember, in the first half of verse 5, God defined the daylight portion of a solar day for us. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. In the second half of verse 5, I believe that God is saying that an evening plus a morning equals one day. And in this context, with an evening and a morning... We're talking about a solar day or a calendar day. Now that he's defined what a calendar day is, God switches to ordinal days to show sequence. Hence we have second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. By the way, this notion of second day or day second, day third, etc., has led some to speculate that maybe we're talking about six literal days here, just not six consecutive literal days. Maybe there were great periods of time between each of these six literal days say billions of years. I disagree. I contend it makes no sense to use ordinal numbers for non-sequential days. But think of it this way. You're watching a race. The first runner crosses the finish line. That was one runner. Runners two, three, and four cross the finish line. Now, runner five crosses the finish line. Would it make sense for the announcer to describe runner five as a second runner? Runner two would probably have issues with that, right? So back to the theme of intentionality. Our God, he knows mankind better than we know ourselves, both in Moses' day and in modern-day America. He knows that we can become distracted and forgetful, and sometimes we could just be downright dense, right? Uh, To help Israel and us understand that he meant six literal days in Genesis, God gave us the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God tells us a few verses later why we are to remember the Sabbath day. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice that we have cardinal and ordinal numbers in this verse, just as we had in Genesis. Six is a cardinal number for counting. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seventh is an ordinal number for showing sequence, as in the day that follows the sixth day. We see the same thing again in chapter 31, but this time with some additional detail. Six days shall work be done, excuse me, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me, again the Lord is speaking, and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So for those who think this day issue isn't a big deal, consider for a moment how important it is to the Lord. He made it a capital offense to break this commandment. Think about it. If you steal or if you covet That's wrong. But if you break the Sabbath, that's fatal. So, just for fun, though, let's assume that each day of creation was some age of indeterminate length, say a billion years. Would it make sense for God to say the following Six ages shall work be done, but on the seventh age, but the seventh age is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath age shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six ages the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh age he rested and was refreshed. Please, Lord, can I live in the seventh age, the Sabbath, when no work can be done for a billion years? Uh, The the fourth commandment, it really makes no sense in a day-age context, nor does it make sense if the days of creation were not consecutive 24-hour days. But if the days of creation are six literal consecutive 24-hour days, then this commandment makes perfect sense. And let's pause for a moment and think about the notion of a week, you know, as it relates to a measurement of time. You know, God told us in Genesis 1:14 that the celestial bodies help us measure days and months and seasons and years, but not weeks. Have you considered that? We get our concept of weeks, Not from the celestial motion, but from the Hebrew concept of the Sabbath. And the Bible tells us that the Sabbath reflects creation week, right there in the commandment, which culminates in God's day of rest. So there's no scriptural basis for what I'm about to say, but consider this possibility. The Almighty God, in His infinite power and infinite wisdom, recognize that neither man's strength nor our wisdom is infinite and that we would need to rest from our labors on a weekly basis. So in his infinite power and infinite wisdom, God chose to take exactly six days. Again, he could have done it in a millisecond. He could have done it in a billion years, but God chose to take exactly six days to create the heavens and the earth and everything in them and then rested on the seventh day. Not because he needed a break, but because he knew that we would need one. Consider the creation week reflects God's care and compassion for his crowning achievement. Can you see God's intentionality here? Isn't our God awesome? Mm -hmm. Okay, we've looked at this literal day business from the eyes of three troublemakers. We've got one more to go. And here's how the Apostle John introduces this street preacher from Nazareth. Yes, I'm I'm sorry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and... Excuse me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Yes, we're talking about Jesus here, and from the perspective of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you could say He was quite the troublemaker. You know, we often think of Jesus as Lord and Savior and Redeemer, but John reminds us that Jesus is also Creator. In Jesus, we have an eyewitness to the Genesis account, and indeed the very author of the book that we're studying. Now look at Mark chapter 10. The Pharisees had just asked Jesus about marriage and divorce. Here's how he responded to them. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus here is referring the Pharisees back to Genesis. As an aside, do you realize that virtually every major tenet of the Christian faith has its roots in the first dozen chapters of Genesis? What's the purpose of marriage? Why is there sin and death in the world? Why do we wear clothes? Genesis has foundation is foundational to all of these topics and many more. But back to verse 6. You know, Again, this is a passage that is frequently read at weddings, but I think we miss something in it. We, uh, when, when we read that, we miss the first few words of the verse but from the beginning of creation. So here, again, Jesus is referring back to Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Again, the when in verse 6 is important, from the beginning. Jesus is saying God made Adam and Eve in the beginning, the same beginning he inspired Moses to document in Genesis chapter 1. Consider how silly Jesus' statement uh, would be if humans had evolved 13.8 billion years after the beginning, as evolutionists contend. To do this, let's take those 13.8 billion years, the slide should say billion, by the way, and compress them into a single calendar year. So on this timeline, on evolution's timeline, the Big Bang happens on the first nanosecond of the new year. Our solar system takes shape on the 2nd of September, the Earth on the 6th of September. Life on Earth appears around the 21st of September. Dinosaurs show up for Christmas Day. Uh, The so-called primitives arrive, our primitive humans arrive on uh, December 31st around 1024 p.m. And Christ arrives at 1159 and 55 seconds. And here we are in the last nanosecond of that year. So if this timeline is correct, then, when Christ referred to male and female being around from the beginning of creation, what he actually meant was the last 96 minutes of a calendar year. Would you consider 1024 on New Year's Eve to be the beginning of the year? If evolution's timeline is correct, then the all knowing, all powerful, ever present creator of the universe misspoke. He erred. He made a mistake. Or else he flat out lied. Remember sola scripta? The tenet that anything that disagrees with the Bible is to be rejected. The notion of God making a mistake is one that I cannot accept, which is a key reason I reject evolution's timeline. Okay, to recap this question, modern Hebrew scholars agree Moses meant a literal six twenty-four hour, or a literal twenty-four-hour day. Uh, Martin Luther agrees that Moses meant six literal 24-hour days. The wording in context of Genesis 1 mandates six literal 24-hour days. The fourth commandment indicates six literal 24-hour days, and Jesus from the beginning only makes sense in the case of six literal 24-hour days. This is why I personally believe in six literal 24-hour days. Next question. Question 2 is a type 2 question, one with a logically deducible answer, and that is, what about the gap theory? The gap theory is the notion that eons of time passed between the first two verses in Genesis. In this supposed gap, God created a first earth that was rich with life, including dinosaurs and all sorts of other now extinct species that we find in the fossil record. But something went wrong, and God wiped everything out and started over. Satan's fall is often posed as the thing that went wrong here. There are multiple problems with the gap theory, but first off, I see no biblical basis for it, neither in these two verses nor elsewhere in the Bible. Let's review these two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know, no matter how long I pause between these two verses, there's nothing in the text that substantiates the existence of a gap here. It makes more sense to think of verse 1 as a summary of God's creative work, and then verse 2 is describing, in additional detail, God's creative process. You know, there's a second issue that I have with the gap theory, and that's that it violates sola scripta. It says that our all-knowing, all-powerful God got it wrong the first time and had to start over. That, my friends, is biblical heresy. The gap theory has another uh, theological problem. It assumes the existence of sin and Death in God's very good world before Adam sinned. So let's look back at Genesis 131 that we covered last week. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. You know, in school, usually when you get a very good on a paper, that means it wasn't quite perfect. Don't think of very good that way here. When you read very good in verse 31, don't consider it anything short of excellent. God is basically saying here that everything in his amazing creation was performing its intended function perfectly. Everything was happening in accord with God's plan. Which is why I personally believe that Satan's rebellion occurs at some point after Genesis 131. Because how could everything be very good if a third of the heavenly beings have already revolted? How could everything be very good if the Garden of Eden were built upon the rotting flesh of creatures that had lived and suffered and bled and died before day one and before Eve's encounter with the serpent? Let's remember what the Scripture says about the cause of death. Sin came in the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Our very faith is built upon the tenet of sin being caused by death. And, if death, and that death is the penalty for sin. If that's not the case, if sin and death aren't inextricably linked, then why did Christ have to die on the cross? And if sin doesn't lead to death, then what exactly is Christ saving us from? Do you see the assault on the very foundation of our faith that happens when we treat Genesis as anything short of literal history? It denigrates what Christ did on the cross. That's a big problem for me. So again, to summarize uh, gap theory, three reasons I don't support it. There's no biblical support for it. It says that God got it wrong the first time, and it puts death before sin, uh, contradicting Romans 5. All right, question three. Is a day different to an eternal being? This is one of those, this is a type one question. Intuitively, we know the answer is yes, and Scripture substantiates that. So, three passages to reference here Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 94 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it passed, or a watch in the night. And then 2 Peter 3, 8 says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Naysayers uh, of a literal account will often take this last passage out of context. Well, more specifically, they'll take the first half of this last passage because they'll say, well, it says right there in Second Peter that to God, a thousand years as a day. A thousand years equals a day. But they skip the part, the second part of that, which says, and a day equals a thousand years, uh, Anyway, Peter is not talking about creation in this verse. If you go back and look at the context of it, what he is talking about is Christ's return. And he's simply saying, it'll happen on God's timetable. Note, by the way, that all three of these verses include the word as. For the English uh, experts in the room, they're similes. They are not math equations. The author's are not trying to tell us some uh, crazy formula for equating how God sees a day. They are trying to describe something that is beyond human comprehension here in a way that we can understand it. Remember, time is something that God created for mankind's benefit. God is eternal. He is outside of time. He was there before the beginning. He'll be there after the end. So one way to imagine that is, think of time as a film strip. We experience it one frame at a time. God sees all the frames at once. And he's arranged those frames to fulfill his ultimate plan to save the elect from damnation so that we can worship him forever. All right, this is the point that if we had any Jeopardy fans in the room, you'd probably be hearing uh, a chime going off in the background because this is the point in the sermon where we enter our lightning round. The next few questions are all type three questions, ones with speculative answers, and we'll address them in rapid fire. So here we go. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created light on day 1, but the sun, moon, and stars were not created until day 4. This puzzling order has caused many to ask question 4. How can we have days and nights before God created the sun? Genesis does not, Genesis does not tell us how God made this happen, but simply that He did make it happen. That's why it's a type 3 question. A logical approach to answering this question requires us to set aside our very sun-centric notion of day and night and instead think about it from an earth-centric perspective. From this perspective, one day is the time it takes the earth to rotate on its axis 360 degrees. Verse 3 tells us that God provided a source of daylight that was not the sun. Whatever the source was, it illuminated part of the planet. If we make the logical assumption that the earth was spherical and that it was rotating during this time frame, just as it does today, then the source of illumination would have provided daylight just as it does for us now. As we marvel on this, though, that leads us right to question five, which is, what was the source of that daylight for those first three days? All we know for sure is that God was ultimately the cause. Verse three says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Maybe God created a temporary light source, or perhaps he excited the electrons on one side of the planet so they glowed, casting light on the earth as it rotated beneath it. Or maybe it was just God's Shekinah glory. What we do know is that our Creator told us that he nourished the earth with daylight before he created sunlight or moonlight. Perhaps God Himself was the light as he will be in eternity. Did you know that Revelation 22.5 tells us that the elect living in the New Jerusalem will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light. Maybe that's what happened here. So. That leads us logically to our next question, why would God create daylight before the sun? And as we continue to think about this, you know, the verse that comes to mind for me is Psalm 19.1, which tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Ultimately, the answer to any why question regarding creation is for the glory of the Almighty God. So how might God be glorified by creating light before sun? A lot of people have pondered this question over the years. Perhaps it was because God foresaw a future where Romans uh, 125 says that man worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. He knew the Egyptians and others would worship the sun. He knew evolutionary cosmologists would later claim that the sun came before the earth. And he knew that we would ultimately ponder this question. And he wanted to make it clear, as if it wasn't clear enough already, that creation is not just glorious. It's miraculous. There are going to be some things about creation that we're just not going to be able to answer. But I'm convinced that our intentional creator did this so that we would glorify him as the creator who is blessed forever. All right, now that we've addressed the type three, now I'd like to address the type three question that I raised at the beginning of the sermon, and that is how did distant starlight make it to the earth by day six? Again, we don't know for sure, but here are some possibilities to consider. One, the universe as a mature, fully functional ecosystem, simply had an appearance of age. We know this was the case at least partially, after all, you know, God didn't make Adam and Eve as infants, and the trees in the garden were already bearing fruit. Second option, perhaps the speed of light was much faster on day four of creation, so the initial starlight would arrive on Earth nearly instantaneously. A third possibility, Maybe the initial, initial expansion rate of the universe was much greater than it is today. And the stars started out much closer to Earth, so it didn't take nearly as long for the sunlight to get here. Isaiah 45.12 does tell us that God stretched out the heavens. Or another alternative, maybe the one-way speed of light toward Earth is instantaneously fast. Did you know that even today, scientists don't know how to measure the one-way speed of light? We measure the two-way speed of light and we assume it is constant in both directions. There's some great YouTube videos in this if you'd like to learn more. Speaking of learning more, that takes us to question eight. If you've been intrigued by today's sermon, then question eight is for you, and that is where to learn more. The short answer is we've got many great opportunities for that, more than I can cover in the time remaining. But here are a few to get you started. You can check out the video and pamphlet for my uh, 2022 sermon, Asking for a Friend, What if I am a Christian, but I believe in evolution? You can also sign up for the UBC Creation Apologetics, which kicks off next Sunday. We unpack these sorts of questions in detail there. And if you're into science, you'll really love this class. We spend a whole hour talking about this distant starlight issue. And we want skeptics to come too. We want to have a great discussion in this class. You can also go visit the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Both are exceptional. In addition to tours, you can listen to scientists with PhDs in all sorts of areas explain how science confirms the creative narrative of the Bible. You can also download the sermon guide for this week's message. In addition to the usual growth group question, it contains a brief outline of today's sermon uh, along with the resources I've listed plus several trusted websites to go check out. Or just come talk to me after service. I love talking about the subject. And if you get nothing else out of today's sermon, remember this creation, it's ultimately about God's glory. So thank you for your attention this morning.